we are doing the Bible course here at this church. We think the Bible is uh, significant for us. It's a book several thousand years old, but we believe that somehow it is the word of God. Written words come alive by the Holy Spirit. They speak to us. They speak God's truth, the way for living, all of that. And so we're doing it at the moment in our small groups at the Bible course. I hope you're enjoying it. Hope you're finding it helpful. It's kind of an overview of the whole Bible story. And uh, we're looking at that this morning. And I'll come to that in a minute. But I want to start with this. Folks, I think we need to choose. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. If the Christian God is the only true God, he deserves our very selves, everything. If there is another God who is the real God, then by all means, follow him. If the Bible is true, if its teachings explain reality, submit to them. If there are other worldviews that unpack reality better, then give yourselves wholly to them. If me and my family is really at the centre of the universe, then commit to it. If that's what the world is to revolve around, then so be it. But if there is a creator of the universe who has set the universe, the world in motion and knows how best to live lives, then be wholly attentive to following him and understanding what he said. If this world is all there is, then give yourselves to the stuff. Give yourselves to material prosperity. Give yourselves to earthly pleasures. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's it. But if eternity is real, then live for it. Live in the light of eternity. So now I've got that off my chest, and we will come back to that. We need to choose. We are looking at the exile and prophets. So this is where we're at on the Bible course, the exile and prophets. This is a story of the kind of kings of Israel as they're sliding away. The nation is sliding away from God and God keeps sending prophets to speak. And so we're looking at the God who judges, disciplines us like a loving mother or father, but gives hope. That's our theme this morning. And any of us who do any talking, it's quite interesting uh, in terms of perhaps preaching particularly, it's quite interesting how uh, you know, a kind of sermon comes together really. Where does that come from? What, where, how do we sense what the Lord is saying? And I just want to share uh, what I felt the Lord saying this morning, uh, for this morning, how I came about this sermon. And to be honest with you, I'm not entirely proud of this. Um, at the moment, there are a number of circumstances, kind of quite big decisions, Personally, as a church, we're trying to make us a, a leadership. Uh, there's a bit of a sense of how perhaps I may have a certain perspective on where I think the Lord's leading us. And uh, there's kind of, in situations like that, when, when I sense things are weighty, I can get into mode where I feel I've got to get this right. I've got to get it exactly right and all mapped out. That's one thing that happens. But in that, I'm kind of beginning to try and control a bit and just make sure a certain outcome and dot every I and cross every T. There's, there's no scope for me 
uh, being, you know, not entirely perfect. And in those situations, I can become a bit discouraged. I can become a bit intimidated by the circumstances and given sometimes to compromise. And uh, I guess I was sat over at my desk there in the office, prepping my sermon, trying to prep it, thinking about some of this stuff and and realising my heart is a bit uh, discouraged and uh, questioning and and not sure I'm really going to give it a go. And I felt the Lord drop in my spirit a thought from which came this sermon. And it was this. I felt the Lord say, you can be a bit fickle, Paul. You can be a bit fickle. You know, your heart can be a bit divided. You can be a bit given to other things and not trust me wholly. And I just thought, that's what Israel was like during this period. Israel was fickle. And as you'll see, that's where the sermon came from. Job done. There's a bit more to it than that. I'm not going to sit down now, you understand, because you wouldn't want me to. And I started looking up the word fickle in scripture and certain versions of the Bible, certain translations have the word, but others uh, use other words for a similar kind of meaning. There's words around faithless or there's words about wandering, Israel wandering or Israel wavering. And interestingly, these words are particularly prevalent, I was quite struck, particularly prevalent on the mouth on the mouth of the prophets. It was them speaking to Israel as she wandered off and was fickle. Prophets, Isaiah, Zephaniah, particularly Jeremiah, who was the main prophet, the main prophetic voice at the time of the exile. Here's a few things Jeremiah tried to say to Israel. It says, during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, that is Jeremiah, how have, you se- have you seen what faithless Israel has done? Another translation puts it, fickle Israel. She's gone up on every high tree and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. Her spirit says, God, I was this loving husband and my bride has gone off a wandering, committed adultery. Jeremiah 14.10 says this. This is what the Lord says about his people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. He let let them go into exile because of this fickleness. He was disciplining them. He wanted them to come back, but he realized they've got to learn somehow. I've got to help them. Jeremiah 31, 22. How long will you wander? The word is vacillate. How long are you going to go backwards and forwards? Unfaithful daughter Israel. So there's this picture of this nation with like a divided heart. It's just given. It just gets drawn away from the Lord who is God. Now, there's many reasons why this was the case, and there's some indications in these verses. Some prophets say there's no fear of God among us. Is God like a, really, in our mind, is he like a big, friendly Santa Claus, just waiting to lob gifts over heaven that we receive? Is that all he is? No parent would do their child any favours by being that sort of parent. There are times when we've got to speak honestly to our children. There was no fear. They were given to sensual temptations. 
a lot of the other gods that Israel started to worship were very sensual in their expression of worship. They believed, Baal was one of them actually, Baal was a fertility god. It was believed that if you um, worship Baal, he would make the land fruitful. The way they did that was to have sex with temple prostitutes as a kind of picture of fertility. They gave themselves to temptations. It says in Zephaniah, here's one for us, any of us that carry any responsibility, their leaders were fickle. And another prophet says, as leaders, so people. If there's no example being held up to them, how are they going to be? Parents, we do know we're leaders in our home, don't we? As leaders, so people. There was unbelief. Abraham was commended in Romans 4, that he did not waver through unbelief. There was a temptation to unbelief, just that Abraham didn't waver. And in Hosea 10, here's a challenge for us in the West. What's the cause of Israel's fickleness here, according to Hosea? Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. They're false altars, by the way. As his land prospered, He adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is divided, fickle, and now they must bear their guilt. What was Israel's problem according to Hosea? Well, they they were well off. They had the stuff. And it meant they didn't have to depend on God. And they were led astray because they prospered. There's one for us in the West. However you feel you're doing, however we feel the economy's doing, let me tell you, we are prosperous. The majority of the world does not live like we do. And it's a temptation to fickleness. Okay. So this is a bit of an issue for Israel during this time. And I want to look particularly at one story, one particular prophet, Elijah, who really this story indicates is indicative of a pattern during this time where we see Israel turn away God sends a prophet, calls Israel back. Israel may or may not come back to God, but then even when they do, they've got a tendency to go off again. And there's an account in 1 Kings 18, if you're following in your Bibles. This is during the time of the king, Ahab, who, Scripture tells us, did more evil than any other king. These were bad days. These were tough times. These were the days of Elijah. I found out the other day, some of you will know there's a song by a worship leader called Robin Mark called These Are the Days of Elijah. I found out the other day how he came to write that Robin Mark. Basically, he came home one evening, slouched on the sofa, put the news on, and just went, oh, this is awful. The world's in an awful state. I went on the, I went on the Sky News the other day on, on my phone, and the first five stories were literally deadly. Everything was about death. Well, let me tell you, these are the days of Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. Robin Mark, he felt God speak to him and say, look, the days you live in, Robin, are only as bad as the days of Elijah. I turned the nation around during the days of Elijah. These are the days of Ezekiel. These are the days of David building a temple of praise. God can do it again. And that's how Robin Mark came to write this song. So we're going to look at Elijah on Mount Carmel. Let's have a look here, what it says. 
Elijah has sent a challenge to Ahab and the prophets of Baal to gather on this place of worship, this Mount Carmel. And it says this. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And then all the people said, that's a good idea. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of the Lord from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. Not a sausage. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They were going at this for hours. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench round it enough to hold two seers of seed. And so Elijah prepares his altar. We'll see what happens in a minute. So firstly, let's look at, this is worth considering, what signs are there that we might be fickle, that I might be fickle? And I wonder whether here there aren't some characteristics of our Christianity in the West. Well, firstly, one sign that we might be fickle is this. We try and combine worship of God with chasing other things. We try and combine worship of God with chasing other things. It's called syncretism. When you try and merge two religions or two faith perspectives, and it's been done throughout history, we want our cake and eat it. Look at verse 21. Elijah here challenges Israel. He says, you can't worship Yahweh and Baal. He says, how long will you waver? The, the word means hop. How long are you going to hop from one to the other? It's either Yahweh or Baal. It's obvious they're trying to combine the two. If they were just following Baal, Elijah would have said, look, you've gone off after the wrong God. He doesn't say that. He says, you're trying to have one and the other. Now, I understand we would see through that, wouldn't we? As if we turn up Sunday by Sunday and sing, I will offer up my life. 
Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And as if we were then, on Tuesday or Wednesday, when we're preparing sermons, or whatever else it is we do, we do during the week, job, family, as if we would then be given to lack of faith, to fickleness, to chasing something else. I understand that all of us gathered here, this isn't a problem for us. Yeah? Where do we go outside of the gathering, outside of when we gather with Christians in whatever place it is? We can be a bit given, can't we? I can be a bit like this. You know, I love worship and I'll declare as best I can. And the Lord understands that. But like I say, I think we can have a tendency to fickleness as well. So firstly, we might try and combine worship of God with chasing other things. Secondly, we may just neglect devotion altogether, actually. Here we have our typical Beck family at worship from the hymn books. We might neglect devotion completely. Look at verse 30. Look what happens. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. It's not sure what this altar was, where it was, and why it was on Mount Carmel. Because they understood they worshipped at the altar in Jerusalem. But they're obviously somewhere, Israel, out of sincere hearts, have built an altar to the Lord here on Carmel. But it had fallen into disrepair. They weren't attending to it anymore because it needed repair. So how's our altar looking? How's that place of devotion to the Lord looking? Let me ask you this. I think it's legitimate to ask, where is it? Because I think our devotion to the Lord will look like something. Now, I understand we pour our lives out in worship to him and obedience. We're called to that. Present your bodies, your very life, as a living sacrifice. I understand that. But I do think there should be times when we come one-to-one to him. And we bring our prayers and offerings and petitions to him and we pour out our heart in prayer or, or we come to his word and, and we try to understand who he is. How's our altar looking? In our marriages, is, do we have an altar at the centre of our marriage? Or is it, is it about something else? Now, hear me right here, it can be about good things. I think one of the tendencies we can have in the West is we've become a, a bit caught up with our family. And let me tell you, obviously our worship is poured out in love to our children and family. But, but are we given to family routines and we're not building the altar of devotion as husband and wife to the Lord, where we pray together, where we worship together, where there's that connection on a spiritual level like that? One of the most helpful pieces of advice Ali and I had was from the guy that married us, an old Welsh minister called Ken Pill. He said this, he pointed out about Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I use it as a wedding talk now, Abraham built his altar. He pitched his tent. Life will be temporary. Situations will be temporary. Relationships will come and go. But he built his altar. He pitched his tent. It was temporary. It would move. But he built an altar. And we find his son and grandson doing that. Jacob and Isaac did the same. I want to encourage us, husband, wife, build an altar with your partner. Build an altar with friends if you're not married. What about the altar at the centre of our family life? 
Let me just tell you, as I said before, I don't think this means necessarily we have family devotions every day. Chris Burgess is the man he is because he did have that. His, his dad did that with him. I confess, we haven't done that. But I think we've loved the Lord together as a family. What we have done is have meal times when we talk. I think probably our altar has been our meal table. We've been in a position where we've been able to have meals together as families, since, certainly since coming out to work in rugby. didn't happen in London. But, but it doesn't have to be a meal table. But there need to be those times when we build an altar as family, where it's about the Lord, where we have those conversations with our children. And let's pray for that. You don't force them. I understand that. But you've got to be open to it. You've got to try and build the altar. It might be a gradual process. But let's try and build altars. One thing about that is, is this sort of thing. Is Sunday a, a place of worship? Is that part of our altar? I found out the other day that Sunday attendance in church is one in four Sundays. Is the habitual attendance at church of Christians now. One in four. Don't know what we think of that. I understand we live busy lives. Life is far busier than it ever has been. There's all sorts of other things going on. But we have to ask ourselves, how can I build an altar? What am I saying to my children if I'm not committed in some way to Sunday gatherings or small groups, devotional times, discipleship opportunities, it will say something. So secondly, they neglected the place of worship. Thirdly, a sign we might be fickle. In the, in the midst of this wavering and compromise, we're likely to forget who we truly are. You remember the Lion King? Simba is driven out by Scar and uh, ends up hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa. Which one's the hog? Pumbaa, thank you. Pumbaa is this smelly hog. So Simba, who's the son of a king, starts hanging out. They're nice guys. They're just a bit stinky. And, and it's certainly not his destiny. And then he encounters Mufasa. And Mufasa says to him, Simba. Remember who you are. I just waited all week to do that, I tell you. I've got, I got another one. Who's this? <sighs> Luke, I feel your presence. Anyway, thank you. No, that's right, yeah, don't give up your day job. Somebody's... Thank you, Mark. So, Mufasa says to his son, remember who you are. Israel have been hanging out with Baal. The, Baal. the prophets of Baal ate at Jezebel's table, at the king's table. These false prophets ate. And I think it was a bit stinky to God. I don't think he liked the smell of that. I know that I know there have been times in my life when I've pursued my own heart. And I think what I've done, the Lord's loving with me and he's gracious. But I don't think it's been a pleasant smell to him where I've been mucking about. And so Elijah reminds Israel who they are. Look at verses 31, 32. Elijah took 12 stones. 12 stones. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. This crowd waiting there. Israelites, been worshipping Baal. 12, 12, 12. What do we know about 12? 12 tribes. This is who we are. We're Israel. We're called of God. We're a people called of God. Took 12 Stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name is Israel. I've given you a name. 
I've given you an identity, says the Lord. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And so Elijah reminds Israel who they are. You have an identity in God. Your identity is not to be found in these other things. Brother, sister, your identity is in God. He's called you by name. Elijah starts to mock as these prophets try to bring down fire. (laughs) Do you know, God, you read scripture, God likes to mock false gods. He's not intimidated. Oh, God, he's he's not intimidated. He's not like a nicey-nicey God. He's... He he wants us to understand it's foolishness to follow other gods. And so Elijah starts to say, perhaps he's thinking. Baal was thought to be a philosopher god. Maybe he's busy thinking. Actually, that word in there, if you have a look at the passage, the word busy is a euphemism for perhaps he's having a doo-doo. Seriously, perhaps he's on the toilet. He says maybe he's traveling. He was the god of the Phoenicians who were a seafaring people. Maybe he's caught up. Whatever the case, he ain't God if he's always located in one place. Because the God of the universe is everywhere. He's omnipresent and he's Lord of all. It would be comical if it weren't so tragic, the manic nature of these prophets of Baal. Do you read it? The way they dance and they're cutting themselves. And it, it, in some verses, in some translation, it says they're kind of raving. They're just, they're just mad. They're manic. Thanks, Peter. I've skipped, haven't I? The fourth sign we might be fickle then. We might fall for any old codswallop. This is what Israel did. How could they give themselves to these prophets? They've got nothing to offer. And, and the way they worship is bizarre. I think... As we look back on the times we live in, potentially, as we have abandoned a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview on family, a biblical worldview on sexuality, a biblical worldview on morality, a biblical worldview on education and how best to run business, we will look back and think, what were we doing? Why did we give ourselves to that way of thinking? As a society, I think that will think that, but even as Christians... It's hard to retain a worldview that embraces Scripture and what it teaches. So, those might be some of the signs that we're a bit prone to fickleness. Well, there's hope. There's hope. He's the God that disciplines, but he gives hope. So, how does God help us in our fickleness? Well, I have to say, through tough love, okay? Through tough love. It's a loving thing to do. Some of you will recognize this graph. We've used it in kind of discipleship. And basically, we think that Christian discipleship, Jesus did this all the time, is high invitation. He says to us, you can have life in all its fullness, but high challenge. It's going to cost. I want everything. You'll have that life, but it'll cost. So there's high invitation, high challenge. There's tough love. So what are the things God does here? Well, firstly... How does he help us? He may send a stirrer. He may send a stirrer. Someone who stirs things up. Ahab meets Elijah and he says, is that you, you troubler? You just go around causing trouble, you do. 
And Elijah says, I'm not, I'm not the one that's caused this problem. You have. You're the one that's given yourself to this way of thinking. Someone said, God comforts the disturbed, but disturbs the comfortable. I have known, and I'm sure you have, some argent provocateurs. There have been some of these people in my life who have just been holy agitators. Have you, do you know these sort of people? That just keep you accountable. They ask the questions. Now, it can feel, and I would add, there's one or two of you in this room now. But in my better moments, I thank God for people like this. Because they help me see blind spots. You, you don't know what you don't know. It can feel at times like you've been 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. <laughs> you know, they, these challenges, these speaking the truth in love. But we've got to allow these people into our lives. Elijah was a holy agitator for Israel. We've got to allow these people into our lives or the danger is we'll just carry on the way we are, plateau and settle for mediocrity. God wants us to take us into more. There's always more with God. More inheritance, more fullness, more depth, more life. But we won't be able to settle for mediocrity. It might be that God calls you to be a stirrer. There might be situations around you where you need to say something. There's friends, perhaps relations, walking in ways that you look at and you go, I, I don't know where they do that. I'm not talking about nagging or having a go at people or, you know, harshness. I'm just talking about prayerful, speaking into one another's lives. Just to say, I say this on the membership evening, it's one of the things we commit to in membership. That we say to our brothers and sisters, if you see me walking in a way that you don't think pleases the Lord or isn't wise, I want you to speak to me. I want you to speak to me. It's not how we do it. It's not British. I get that. It's not British. There are some cultures. I think Hebrew culture, Glaswegian culture, he says, looking at Ruth. (laughs) There are some cultures that do this. They're straight. It can be good for us. And we should embrace it. Can I just have an amen at this point? Because I'm feeling a bit insecure that... On all this, okay, thus far. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Just my little insecurities there. I think, I think this act of preaching is a bit like this. I realise, come Wednesday, you and I will have forgotten what I've said this morning. I understand that. You won't, maybe one or two of us, this, something in this will speak to them and will remember something. But by and large, life takes over. But what happens with preaching is this. I've been thinking about this a little bit recently. What happens with preaching and actually this gathering, actually life groups do this as well, is if nothing else, as we go on, get caught up in life, we can't see the wood for the tree, stuff happens, we come Sunday by Sunday and somebody gets up in front of us and says, I just want to remind you, God is real. If nothing else, it does that. It just reminds us, the gathering in worship reminds us of that. There's another dimension to our lives which we do well to take note of. God may send a stirrer. Secondly, and this is where we started, he'll call us out. He'll call us out. I like this slide. You may get it in this gathering. It wasn't so much got in the other gathering. If God calls you out and you're mad about it, in the words of the song, let it go, let it go. Yeah, thank you. Someone was a bit tuneful down there. Thank you. That was very helpful. Look at verse 21. Elijah went before the people and he said to them, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? He calls them out. 
He calls them out because it's good for them. There are times when God calls us out. Maybe it's happening this morning. God calls us out. You see, there was a lot at stake at this time. Look at what one commentator has said. Elijah was the man raised up by God at the time that Baal worship threatened the very existence of the worship of Yahweh. They were just subsumed by worship of other gods. God may call us out because he may think Christianity is a bit threatened at this time. And some of us need to make a stand. I heard Steve Clifford, who heads up the Evangelical Alliance the other day. And he said, one of the things he thinks is happening at the moment is God is not letting us get away with nominalism anymore. What's nominalism? It's when we have a kind of okay faith. We're a bit nominal. Okay, faith in name only. That word nominal means name. We, we, we're named as Christians, but, but we're kind of, yeah, who, you know, no big deal. You see, being a Christian doesn't hold any social kudos at the moment, does it? When we used to talk, even when I grew up, if you said you were a Christian, it usually meant you were a good person. And people would own being a Christian because it kind of meant they're a good person. It doesn't mean that anymore. We're on the wrong side of social orthodoxy. Maybe it's a God thing. Maybe God's calling us out because he only wants disciples who are committed. That's, that's what he calls all of us to. Maybe God's calling us out individually. We don't want to be like Jennifer Lawrence here, kind of, oh, that's a bit awkward. God's calling me out. You, did you notice what happened? God calls Israel out. He says, how long are you going to waver? If the Lord's God, follow him. And it says, the people said nothing. They had nothing to say. They knew, Guilty. That was a bit awkward. Orcs. Don't know what that was. <laughs> Finally, how does God help us? Well, fire may fall. Fire may fall. In verses 36 to 39, I won't read them, but just you can read them while I'm saying this. But basically, Elijah steps forward. He calls down the fire of God. The fire falls. And it says at the end there, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, what was going on here? Again, one commentator says this. The contest was not to demonstrate which of the two gods was greater, but to demonstrate which was the true God and the other no God at all. Brother, sister, I want to tell you this morning, there is only one God. And we do well to follow him wholeheartedly. He doesn't know any other sort of following. He only calls us to wholehearted following. Remember that word. Israel was prone to wandering. The word can, does mean divided. Israel had a divided heart. God wants us to have a whole heart, to be old. Absolutely committed. And so the fire fell. Fire, as we know, purges. It purged Israel of wrong beliefs. It purged Israel as false prophets. And so three things fell that day. Fire, Baal, and the people. Chris came up and shared just when I said about waiting on God and bowing the heart. He said, bowing, it's, it's the posture of the heart. whether we do it literally or not. And I think there are, I think, I don't see enough of us 
prostrate literally. I think that should happen. When you read scripture, that's what happens when people met God. The fact we're not may be a sign we don't encounter him as he truly is. We should ask to do that. We should ask to encounter him more then. But, but at the very least, our hearts should be prostrate. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know you're, you are flat on your face in your heart? Do I know that? And is that how I live most of my life? Let's wrap this up. This may have been a bit challenging. Like I say, I think that's God's intention that there's a bit of stirring goes on whenever someone preaches. But I hope it's been tough love. My usual response cycle when God challenges me is this. Let me describe what happens with me. Firstly, I probably sink. Okay, I'm often discouraged. I may feel condemned. I certainly feel inadequate. And I probably sulk and say, yeah, it's just not fair, Lord. You're just being unfair. I can't do that. In my better moments, though, something happens. You see, you can't stay there. The best party, certainly the most regular party I throw, is a pity party. Because I know, I know how to throw those parties. I'm good at those. Where I just look inward. But in my better moments, I realise I can't stay there. I'm not going to live my life, the rest of my life, there. Maybe I see who the Lord is. Maybe something in me realises who I am. And I remember who I am in God. It's not about me doing it anyway. It's about him. We can do nothing the Lord asks us to do outside of his strength. We can't do any of it in our own strength. It's all his strength. So we throw ourselves on him. And in my better moments, like Rocky Balboa, I kind of rise up. Seriously, this is what happens. I start speaking to myself. I get a bit, I get a bit cross with myself. And cross with situations, I've been in situations before, where it's a kind of, oh, show I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Adam, get on the guitar, quick. Rising up. Sorry, I do apologize. Cut. Seriously, we need to galvanize ourselves sometimes. And not just give in. And there needs to be something inside us that says, I can do this. I can do this in God, whatever he's calling me to. I can do this. I'm not going to stay here in, in this low discouragement and the slough of despond and all of that. I'm better than that. I wasn't made for that. I'm a child of God. I'm a son of the king. Remember who you are, Paul. So... If God's been speaking to us this morning, I want to encourage you, rise, rise to the challenge. Not in your own strength, forget that, but in God's strength. Or better still, fall on your face. Fall on your face and let him pick you up. Let him pick you up, he'll do that. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. Can we do that, can we do oceans again? This song starts by singing, you call me out upon the waters. 
you call me out. Has God been calling you out this morning? Now, it may be, it may be you're kind of, you know, it's, you're doing all right. You're doing all right. But it may just be you want to give yourselves a fresh to that and say, I'm doing all right and this is good for me to be doing. And I'm going to keep walking with God. It may be that there's something there that there's a per- particular situation or relationship or something and you're trying to straddle both. You're trying to, you want to walk with God, but you realise you're also wandering over here a bit and you're giving yourself to this. I want to I say to you, call the fire down on that. Whatever that is that's taking you away from God, call the fire down on it. Purge yourself of that. Or it may just be that fundamentally you know you've been fickle and that's your whole orientation. It's not just a particular thing. It's like, I just realise I'm, I'm hopping. I'm to and fro. I'm not dependable. And you may just want to come before the Lord this morning and say, I give myself to you, Lord. We don't always do this, but I want to do it this morning. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to say to you, why don't you come down the front as a sign? We don't, we don't necessarily have to know what it is. We're going, to, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray the fire falls, that you're refreshed. The words of the prayer ministry team this morning was around an encouragement to be prepared, get ready by being filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This morning it's raining and water butts are being filled to overflowing. We minister out of the overflow of being full. A reservoir stored and ready for the dry time. Water to bring refreshment and life. It's how God wants to bring transformation to us and through us. By the fire falling. We need an encounter with him. Now that may happen where you are, but I want to encourage you as we start to sing this. If God's been speaking to you, come forward. We'll get the prayer ministry team to pray for you. I want to pray for you. And let's just call the fire now. Glorious, wonderful, refining fire. It's good for us.